brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, happy days are here again from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And it doesn't take much for most people to realize the restrictive systems and strategies of the capstone cabal know no bounds. Taxes, schooling, fiat currency, the illusion of a democracy, the criminal injustice system, the bureaucracy, the red tape, and all the rest of it act as shackles around the collective people and work to contain and restrain them rather than empower them and unleash their infinite potential. Unfortunately, we've been born into a system that has had hundreds, maybe even thousands of years to refine its tools used against us and continue adding layers to the stack with enough finesse that few people even recognize the true scope of its existence. Fortunately for us, today's returning guest, Ross Ben, is one man who does. If you remember our last conversation, Ben broke down the mystical dimensions and layers of Philadelphia, taught us about the dark depths of Ben Franklin and the Hellfire Club, and explained why the Mandela Effect should really be called the Philadelphia Experiment Effect. It was a fascinating bundle of threads that has now been released in book form with the title Great Mystery Philadelphia. If you missed that show, Ross Ben is known for being an innovative teacher, counselor, wellness provider, peacekeeper, astrologer, energy healer, and jack of many trades. He has a Master of the Arts degree in African American Studies from Temple University, and he's also the author of Rocks of Ages, Ancient Technologies for the New Millennium, which explores using crystals and sacred stones as resources for spiritual technology. Well, today we're talking mainly about his third book, which is just hitting the shelves, entitled Free Your Mound and Your Mind Will Follow, which is going to get into exactly one of these control layers that many people fail to see, and it is the most mind-blowing thing I've read in a while, and that's saying something. From the esoteric hotbed that is Philadelphia, here to break the spell and give us the eyes to see, the great ritual revealer and exposer of this mound-to-mind manipulation, the enlightened and ever-woke Ross Ben. Welcome back to the higher side, man. Yes, I give thanks. And and greetings, uh, THC community. Much love. Oh, man. I am 
Really excited about this one. Thanks for being here. The last show we did was really well received, and we had talked about how there is so much more in your repertoire to talk about. Before we could even catch up, though, you put out another book, and this material is just as impressive. Free your mound and your mind will follow. I like that a lot. The last time we talked, one of the major themes was that the elite, especially the Founding Fathers, had a lot of esoteric knowledge, and they used every tool in the occult playbook, and they still are, and you expressed it as their desire and practice of manipulating historic and prophetic timelines. Do you consider this mound magic to be part of that same plan? It is a part of it, and one of the reasons why it was able to manifest so quickly after the Great Mystery Philadelphia, to be totally honest with you, this is, this was research and information that I had compiled initially before the book evolved into what, what is called the Great Mystery Philadelphia and focus, focusing primarily on history and prophecy. Before that, the vision of the, uh, book that I started with was called Mystic Philadelphia. The Astrology and Geomancy of America's First Metropolis, right? Because that's what even kind of started me in into this research, was looking at the mounds of Philadelphia and what edifices were built atop of them and attempting to get meaning from that. Mm-hmm. But the way the great mystery Philadelphia as a book evolved, this information, it didn't make the cut. And for a while, it was sitting on my computer idle. And what happened was I uh, had an opportunity to travel to Virginia and pass through Richmond. And the people that I were with, you know, took me on a tour of Richmond and let me really see the lay of that city. And the geomancy is so in your face in Richmond. I was kind of able to decode the city and like, like 15 minutes, man. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty deep. But anyway, I came home and like they were inspired to do this type of research, to do more. And I came home and I realized I could articulate and decode the city form in a day or two, which may take them like a month or two to penetrate. Mm-hmm. So let me come home and do it. And that's what I did. And when I did, I realized, wow, you know what? If I take the general information that was in the free your mound and your mind will follow presentation that I shared with the free your mind conference, that was actually my very first presentation with them. If I take that and make it the introduction and if I then kind of, you know, make this information that was left out of the great mystery didn't make the cut. Basically all all the geomancy and astrology of Philadelphia and the mystical connection of Philadelphia to Washington DC. All that was all the information that didn't make the cut. So I took that, connected it with the information I compiled to Richmond, and bam, here we go. <laughs> Yeah, man. It's nuts that this would end up on the cutting room floor because one of the things that I think is so special about it is you kind of lay out a template 
for geomancy and what to look for to decode this stuff in major cities across the country. And some of my favorite shows have been deep dives with local researchers looking into the esoteric elements of their city. And this template just gives you a whole new toolbox in which to do that. Some of us see weird statues and alignments in our city and we just say, huh, I wonder what that's about. <laughs> and you can't really get the whole puzzle when you just have these little pieces that are spread across your area. So this is just really fascinating. And Richmond, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia are the big cities that you go over in the book and you show the layout there. And from that, you can extrapolate it, take some of these things to your own neck of the woods, and we can really figure out a lot of crazy stuff here. And we've definitely heard of mounds and the mound builder culture that used to inhabit these lands. It's a big part of the hidden history of ancient America, but it's more than just America. And we should probably start as far back as we can with what these mounds really are and who built them. I mean, how would you break people into this, man? How far back do the mounds go? How'd they get here? Well, I will say mound building technology appears to be like roots of it is antediluvian or pre-flood. So you're talking at least 13,000 years, okay? And mound building is a global phenomenon as well, okay? So to get into the fullness of that is I need more. I need more time and more in-depth research to be able to fully articulate this global anti Diluvian mound building timeline, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. like how that thing rolled out. So I do limit my, my focus on what we would call the mound, for lack of a better word, back, lack of a better term, the mound builders and, uh, post flood mound builders in North America. Okay. And historically, they're basically known as the Mississippi mound builders. They've, gotten other names like once these people moved into like the Ohio Valley and Tennessee Valley, you know, Shenandoah Valley, them got different names, but it's essentially the one, you know, these one people who I would say their ultimate root is Omeka, uh, that the mound building culture of North America post flood, you could say the roots of most of those lineages is the Olmec and that they moved up the Mississippi River. And when I say up, I mean north. And once they reached about the 40th parallel, also the 38th parallel, at the 38th parallel, they seem to have built their largest mound in North America, which is known as Cahokia. And that's close to where St. Louis is today. Mm-hmm, where I grew up. Okay, so I guess you're familiar with Cahokia, and I think there was another place in that region called Mound City that was almost completely leveled with only one or two mounds remaining. But also at the 40th parallel, they seemed to have made an eastern trek into the Ohio Valley, and the Ohio Valley is full of different epochs of mound building cultures, you know, mm -hmm. each one 
spanning about five or six hundred years, roughly. And they also came to the eastern seaboard here in Philadelphia, find the mound builders in Maryland and Virginia. Their route there seems, seems, if you ask me, it was from the 40th parallel here to what was called Shaksamatsan and then south. But there is the possibility that they came up through the Alabama and Tennessee regions as well. But that is the possibility. So, but the thing is, is that they tended to build their mounds on, for lack of a better word, what is known as ley lines. These are magnetically charged grids that run through the earth that are a result of earth's magnetic field, which kind of, you know, creates our atmosphere, you know, the shield of the magnetic fields of the earth is what allows the biosphere, you know, the living sphere within the planet. And uh, this magnetic field of the earth, because of the earth's rotation, its relationship with the magnetic fields of the sun, kind of imprints a magnetic grid on onto the planet. And indigenous cultures tended to build pyramids and mounds on these magnetically charged grids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why when you find a lot of megalithic and monolithic structures around the globe, you can see there's like a geodetic connection. You know, they're in some angular relationship with one another. And the mound builders, they, they dealt with that same thing. Sure. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about what the mounds are. We look at a pyramid, and that's pretty clear to see that there's a lot of ingenuity that goes in there. But I think people are a little confused on the mounds. I mean, they look kind of just like hills or piles of dirt, but we're saying they're a lot more than that. In the book, you say... Mounds are an indigenous spiritual technology designed to amplify and augment magnetic life force spirit energy into the environment in which they lived. Mounds simultaneously connect with all three sources of magnetic spirit life force, ancestral, terrestrial, and celestial. So I have to ask, if these mounds are such a big deal, like what are they really? What would a person see if we excavated one? How can we make the case that they are more than just hills and they do represent pretty advanced spiritual technology. Hmm. Well, Thomas Jefferson in his notes on Virginia actually excavated a mound, the, the Riviana mound on his plantation at Monticello, which means little mound. And what he found was that there were approximately a thousand corpses of indigenous ancestors buried within the mound, all aligned a certain way, all positioned kind of like in a certain way, most mostly a fetal position. They were also adorned with certain metallic implements and jewelry and, you know, uh, blessings for the other side. Okay, so mounds of that nature are called sepulchral mounds or ancestral burial mounds. And these were designed to help the surrounding community and the prodigy of the ancestors buried within those mounds maintain communion, you know, maintain community. 
give the ancestors the ability to connect with them, connect with the living on this side. And I go into detail onto the science of that. I don't know if it's, you know, worth the time now, but, you know, that was one feature of, the, of, of using the mounds as a part of a spiritual technology. They also usually aligned mounds with the magnetic poles and magnetic fields of the earth so that you could tune into the frequencies of nature, be like the birds that migrate, be like the flowers that know when it's time to bloom and, you know, be informed. You know, nature informs itself through magnetic fields. And so that's, again, the biosphere is related to the magnetic sphere. And so mounds were also often aligned with some celestial constellation or star body or star system. Either they mirrored it in its shape and its form or proportion, like, you know, a series of conical mounds in the shape of the little, you know, that made like the little dipper in smaller scale or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or actually uh, a mound of like a serpent that, rep, you know, each point in the serpent representing a star to the indigenous. So the mounds would help them align with the magnetic imprint coming from the heavens as well you know so it's a part of spiritual technology an indigenous spiritual technology connecting with what we say are the three key sources of natural magnetic information you know that humans can tap the earth the heavens and the ancestors right so the major premise here of this book is that we had this pre-flood global mound matrix created by the ancients and then continued into post-flood indigenous cultures, and then the founding fathers, these nefarious Freemasons and Rosicrucians and other members of esoteric orders set out to hijack this energy grid in the New World because they had already done this across Europe, right? Well said. Absolutely. That's exactly what went down. And we would call these folk, the, I just call them like how you have mound builders, Right. They want to put that label on the indigenous. So I call them the mound gritters. And these are ones that know how to identify mounds, survey the land adjacent to them, determine the ley line network between the mounds and then occupy the land with that being the, the, the energetic line of attack that they take, you know? And so usually what will happen is the most significant mounds or the highest mounds of a region will be occupied by an edifice or a building that's real significant in mound gritter history. And maybe even their blood, their own blood has been shed on that mound. And their own ancestry buried on that mound kind of a part of occupying it as well in their world, you know, energetically. And that's when you get into the realms of what you would call necrogeomancy, where mound gritters have a science and a pattern of desecrating the indigenous buried in the mound somehow, some way. And then, you know, burying their own there in an exalted memorialized way and or building an edifice atop of it. Right. And there's just so much data in the book that 
makes the case that these early founders did really care about this stuff. I mean, Henry Adams is a guy you bring up. He was the founder of Boston. His first colony was referred to as the Mount. We have Richmond, which really is like a variation of Rich Mound. John Adams lived at Rich Mound Hill. Actually, the six, first six presidents all resided on mounds, Mount Vernon, Mount Pillar, And this all kind of helps to make that case that they definitely cared. And when you look now, that's part of that overlaid grid is that they've compromised these places, these energetic wells of potent energy, and they've put their own statues, their own monuments specifically on them to co-opt that energy and to change it for, I guess, they all have their own reasons, but generally just the the empire, the expansion and the power and the potency of the empire, which obviously it's been quite potent over the years. Yes. And when you say empire, to be specific, that's Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big, a big intention embedded in a lot of the occupying of mounds, excuse me, that you find is the resurrection of Rome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the book, you... Describe the features of a well-designed necrogeomantic city. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about some of those bullet points that make up the profile. Because as you know, I even just did this in San Diego here just a little bit. And I already found several interesting things. But this is the template people could use to look at their own city with new eyes and see if it's part of this necrogeomantic spell. Yes. Usually, a well-designed geomantic city is going to have it's going to be laid out on what's called a bipolarized quadrangle, meaning it is going to be a four-sided city, either rectangular or square, right? And it's going to have some polarity expressed within it, meaning it might have two axes, one a like geographical axis that defines the central, the like geographical center of the city. Like if you were to look at it on a map, right? And then the other axis being uh, the roadway axis that kind of defines the uh, quadrants of the city based on, on driving and signage. Ideally, one of those poles will be the, what they call the city's mundus, which means navel, right? And this is basically a portal. The, t- the timing and the birth of it, uh, they calculate very important. Like they put a lot of time and attention into uh, opening the mundus. But they consider this the portal that connects the city to heaven above, the heavens above, as well as the layers of the levels of the underworld okay so uh the opening of the mundus is very important for them okay of course one of those poles ideally will be situated at the top of a mound right so that they could plug into the global mound matrix ideally the axes of the city will be magnetically aligned with the earth meaning if you were to like stand on the major north-south roadway axis that defines the east-west quadrants of the city with a compass and face 
straight up that street. If that city's magnetically aligned, that compass is going to point straight up the street. And to the degree that your compass doesn't point straight up the street is the degree that that city's not magnetically aligned. But ideally, it'll be magnetically aligned. And uh, let's see. Am I am I missing something? No, those are a lot of the bullet points that I find fascinating. You also mentioned that seven mounds, if they can be incorporated properly into the urban design, seven hills are referred to as a Cincinnati or a city of seven hills. And that's kind of some of the most potent usage of this geomancy, right? Yes. Well, that's connected to the whole thing where I was saying a big intention embedded in the geomancy is the resurrection of Rome. Mm -hmm. And Cincinnati is the poetic name of Rome, just like Columbia is the poetic name of the United States, right? Like the District of Columbia. Cincinnati is the poetic name of Rome. So Cincinnati means city of seven hills, poetically. So you know, to kind of show that, hey, a big part of occupying this realm is resurrecting Rome. They level all but seven and build major edifices or memorials to their resurrecting Rome on these seven hills. And then that city will be a Cincinnati. So there's several Cincinnati's throughout the United States. You know, you could even Google that. I think there's a Wikipedia listing of the different Cincinnati's throughout the United States. And I'm not saying that that's a comprehensive list. You can still explore your own city, but that's, that's a right. If, if they're because of, you know, if they're not prevented because of topological or topographical features or just the growth in the evolution of the city that it like Philadelphia Metropolitan Philadelphia, like what it is today, was not a planned city, you know? So just the way Philadelphia grew and evolved, it had to kind of be resurrected as a Cincinnati. But even with that, it's the geomancy of Philly is not ideal as far as, you know, like what you would say, the features of a well-designed geomantic city. So, you know, some cities, it's the topography or just the way the lay of the land, it might prevent them from having some of the features, might be political. D.C. was a perfect geomantic city, and that was actually destroyed by these same mound gritters in the retrocession of, I think it was uh, 1846. You know, a big do in big part because of Alexandria, Virginia's money connections to the slave trade and Alexandria being a slave port and, you know, them able to wield enough money and, and lobbying force in Congress to make that happen, you know, as well as some other geomantic dynamics that I point out. <laughs> Yeah, I love that part of the book, and I definitely want to get deeper into that. But just to give people maybe an example or two of this co-option of some of these specific places on the grid, because according to the indigenous people who had the knowledge of how this stuff works, they said things done on this mound grid would happen with the full participation of the earth. So 
structures and statues that are built to be specifically disrespectful of the indigenous peoples they conquered, or really just us, the everyman, they end up having a big effect. And one example would be a statue you talk about on a mound in Philly. I believe it looks like it depicts two watchers, as you say, performing abusive sodomy and vampirism. And it does. I mean, obviously, art's open to interpretation, but it seems like they're doing some dark stuff to people in this statue. So this depiction of their intention happens with the full participation of the earth. And there are other examples. Maybe you could talk to us about one of them, like George Washington's equestrian statue. This seems to have a deeper meaning than people realize. They just think it's George Washington on a horse, but there are other details within the statue that reveal it as one of these disrespectful statues that they want to cover up or want to hide hide the negative history and negative intention within, right? Yes. Hey, I want to start by a current event with social consciousness, which is the statue you were talking about with the Nephilim and the fallen angels that was on the, by the mortal entrance of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. When we become aware of these things and talk about it and really, you know, start penetrating them for what they are, right? Number one, it demagnetizes their effect, right? And two, and this is why I don't, I think that just getting or becoming aware of this whole science is so important because once you do, yeah, man, they're going to take that stuff down themselves. Hmm. Social consciousness just two weeks ago, brother, was taken down from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Wow. They removed it, they said, because of renovation, but it's no longer up there, man. Okay? Wow. Now, I heard they're going to place it somewhere on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. So, of course, I'm going to stay aware and vigilant and follow up with that. But social consciousness has been removed, man. Okay? So, yeah, I wanted to make mention of that. But, uh, yeah, that George Washington Equestrian statue is very, man, it's, it's probably one of the most important statues in the United States of America to decode properly. And if you decode it properly, really most of the keys of urban necrogeomancy, you know, the science that's in this book, you'll you'll understand it. The significance of the mounds, how they shed their blood and bury their dead on the occupied mounds, how killing and displacing the indigenous is a part of, you know, this whole thing. Yeah, man, that, that statue is, is very important. And it's, uh, it's so important. It's really the one statue, one significant, well, there's a, actually a couple, but th- it gets a significant decoding in both the Great Mystery Philadelphia and Free Your Mound and Your Mind Will Follow, you know, because it's, it's just that relevant to all these realms, you know, history, mystery, prophecy, and the urban necrogeomancy. Mm-hmm. And it's great news that that other statue was taken down. And as you note, it's kind of a baked in mechanism to keep us from getting screwed too hard if we have the eyes to see, because everything you want to do on this grid has to be public. Yeah, you can kind of 
veil it, and you can dumb the people down so they no longer understand this kind of mound magic. But if you do raise the conscious awareness to this activity, as you've been doing, as you say, it starts to be revealed, and they'll take it down because they don't want work like yours to be able to decode what they've done because obviously now at this point in the timeline they've had quite a few successes and I mean obviously they're still drawing from these wells but it'd be better to just keep it a secret at this point and just go off what they've already melted. but I think that is a an excellent point and I'm glad to hear that it seems like there has been an effect you know you've seen a little bit of an effect and just to elaborate on this George Washington equestrian statue, if people were to Google it, say they're not familiar with it and they checked it out, what should they be looking for as as the keys or the clues that it's been used in this way? Okay. Well, on one side, you have two, but beneath George Washington, you have two queens. The queen facing what? We identify in the Great Mystery of Philadelphia as the Lenape Road to Hell, which is the Ben Franklin Parkway, with major stops being the Rodan Museum, where the actual gates of hell are open, uh, Logan Circle, where you have Swan Memorial Fountain that memorializes the Lenape disconnection with nature, and then City Hall which memorializes the Lenape just being integrated into Babylon, you know, City Hall being a, you know, Babylon mystery temple and the way the Lenape are depicted in that. So the one queen is facing that, and this is the indigenous queen. She's the queen goddess Winona. And really the Lenape road to hell starts with her assassination. She's flanked by two colonists. One tipping his hat to her, like coming with, you know, an idle cap up. Uh, the other is extending a wreath, an invitation to be a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, but both of them have cloaked daggers in their hand. Meanwhile, her husband, the chief Tammany, is not paying attention to her assassination. His back is turned to it. He's actually facing the Lenape road to hell himself. And he's kind of stupefied by it, wearing a William Penn medallion. So that's the one queen. The other queen, the queen that's facing the Lenape's most sacred mound, which is occupied by Philadelphia Museum of Art. The mound where they said, hey, what happens here happens with the full participation of the earth. It's the queen goddess Winona, uh, excuse me. The uh, new queen, Columbia, and in one hand, she's holding a sword by the blade, not the handle. And that symbolizes, hey, she'll shed her own blood. In the other hand, she's holding two flagpoles, represents where we shed our own blood, will establish a, a memorial. She's flanked by what we would call the dead bearing the dead. Two soldiers, well, one is a soldier dying with a rifle in his hand. The other is a dead man with a shovel. So this is about the most clearest allusion to necrogeomancy you're going to find in the United States. It don't get much more direct in the symbolism and the language of the musage. Yeah, thanks for breaking that one down because I do think it is such a prime example. And so we know that controlling 
These mounds and their energy can have profound effects on reality. And one of my favorite parts of the book was when you write about Washington, D.C., which we already know is a very esoterically planned city. But as an example of someone understanding the power of the mounds and trying to reverse it or actually harness it for the prosperity of their own people, you write about the saga of Benjamin Banneker. And you call it Benjamin Banneker's Chocolate City. And this is pretty amazing, but tell the people who Benjamin Banneker even was. Hmm. Yeah, well, he is a uh, overlooked key figure in the history of the founding of Washington, D.C. A lot of the credit that is given to Andrew Ellicott is actually the work of Benjamin Banneker. And Benjamin Banneker is more than likely from indigenous Algonquin mound builders of Maryland. He's from Ellicott City. Well, what has evolved into Ellicott City at at his times, that what evolved into Ellicott City was called Ellicott Mills, and it was close to where he resided. And as an indigenous mound builder, you know, mound building was another part of it and a part connected with its alignment with celestial uh, bodies was timekeeping, you know. So mounds would be aligned with certain celestial bodies to help, you know, when the sun shined at a certain angle on the mound or if it hit a certain part, then they knew like, oh, this is the equinox. Oh, this is the solstice. You know, the sun's reached its highest zenith coming north and You know, we got to start planning for fall now. And Benjamin Banneker came from a family that kept all of that science, the Banneke family. And he was known in the area where he was from, like I said, which became Ellicott City, for being like, hey, if if you wanted to know you're a farmer and you wanted to know you needed, like, information you, you would find in an almanac, yeah, go to Banneke because... He'll let you know, hey, it's time to plant, it's time to harvest, it's time to start preserving. It's, yeah, he. so actually Andrew Ellicott's, a relative of his, George Ellicott, heard about Banneke first and gave him some astronomical observing tools and some calculating tools. And Banneke produced an ephemeris as well as the system for predicting eclipses from this part of the world. So fast forward a couple of years, Andrew Ellicott, he is a surveyor, okay? But he's not like his, his, his awareness of the celestial sphere and how to correspond it to the earth mound matrix. He's not, he don't have that science, right? You got Pierre L'Enfant, who has been sent on a mission to not only like, hey, we're going to make this capital for the new this new nation, a perfect geomantic city aligned on the global mound matrix. We also want it celestially aligned as well. We want the mounds. We want the city grid to not even not only be aligned to the magnetic poles of the earth to the global mound matrix, but also the heavens itself, right? 
they put L'Enfant on that mission. I'm not going to go into all the details of it. But L'Enfant, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it based on where he was trying to make the southern marker for the city be. And eventually he got fired for it. His lead surveyor was Andrew Ellicott. He was given the task. But Ellicott couldn't do it either. But he had heard through his family member, George, about Benjamin Banneke and made him his lead assistant. And it was Benjamin Banneke that laid the one stone necessary to, to give them some of the most amazing geomantic, geodetic urban layout that is like, man, it's, it's mind blowing when you get into the details of it, you know? <laughs> yes. Just to go back to what uh, I thought I caught you heard say earlier, but was Benjamin Banneker African-American or Native American? Well, I think he came from, I think at least his mother was indigenous Algonquin. His father, Robert, is chronicled as being a Guinea man, which means it is possible he could have come from any part of uh, West Africa or the Congo, as well as the Caribbean. Guinea has a kind of vague, you know, <clears throat> multiple vague meanings. Mm hmm mm hmm Because that's kind of important information for the context of what he did, but he seems like one of the good ones. And this happens once in a while where a good person is within these circles and they don't want to do all the negative stuff, so maybe they use some of these tools for the people and then they're definitely scrubbed out of history and, you know, they don't get the respect they deserve. And I had pulled just a few interesting facts about him off of Wikipedia, but I'm sure, you know, some of the details of what they have are, I'm, you know, if they're inaccurate, I'm not surprised. But it says that he was born to a free African-American woman and a former slave. Maybe it's a Native American woman and a former slave, but... He had very little formal education, was largely self-taught, according to Wikipedia, but this is interesting. It says, although a fire on the day of Banneker's funeral destroyed many of his papers and belongings, one of his journals is available for public viewing. But how many times have we heard that? It's like a guy like Tesla or Wilhelm Reich. Yes. You know, destroying their documents and all their work. That's exactly right, man. Andrew Ellicott did that, mm. I think, ultimately so that he can claim credit for laying, like I said, this one stone, which is the actual Banneker stone that just, when you know the fullness of the geodetic and geomantic powers it unleashes in D.C., it's, it's amazing. And that's the thing, and that's ultimately one of the things I get into where I think they got a little more than they bargained for. Because Banneke was definitely an advocate for equal rights and justice for all. He received uh, a lot of shade from Thomas Jefferson and these same ones who he was working with. They, you know, showed him shade and didn't really honor. You know, they used his works but didn't really honor his efforts. And I feel that he with full awareness, was like, okay, I got you. And beyond giving them the geomantic expressions that they wanted in the city, opened up what we would call the North Portal of the Summit Hill, which uh, is a very large hill that, a very large mound 
that is like in the polarized opposite position of the original Banneker stone within the city. And yeah, that North Portal opened up geomantic scenario that turned Washington, D.C. into Chocolate City. Yeah. If you know anything about D.C.'s history and see, I'm even though I've lived in Philly for 20 years, 25 years, I'm born and raised Washington, D.C. And I was really born in what you would call some of the pinnacle expressions of, of Chocolate City, you know, what they would call the Barry years, you know, Marion Barry, where you even he's one of the penultimate, sad to say, one of the penultimate expressions, the power, DC's Chocolate City, where, man, this man was caught on camera smoking crack with his mistress and was still reelected mayor. I don't even know if Trump could do that today, man. <laughs> Straight up. But this was because once you tapped, if you were an indigenous person, man, and you just tapped into this vibe and this energy that was permeating the city that at it, like again, around this time was, some said was close to 86% indigenous. Right. It was powerful. And there were a lot of songs written, a lot of music about D.C. at that time kind of captured the spirit of that era. You know, Par Parliament Funkadelic wrote a whole album called Chocolate City, you know, and some might be familiar with that song, Doing It in the Park, Doing It After Dark. If you don't, you need to get up on it. <laughs> I think it's uh, Donald Byrd. But um, that was all about the vibes and, and the fullness of, of energy that one would feel up in Rock Creek Park and at that time. So so Banneker opened up a portal. It took him close to a hundred and something years to close up. And we do talk about the different things that they did to close it. And I mean, you would have to know that it's deep and for real, because again, when you talk about a perfect geomantic city, Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia was a perfect geomantic city and for them to dismantle it it can't be no uh idle reason mm -hmm. but uh i do give thanks for i tell you uh i have done a number of interviews over the years and you know after interviews released you do get a uh feedback from different communities i have to say my connection with the higher side chat community the TAC family was uh very uplifting man <laughs> uh you got a high frequency community and I feel like if there's anyone I could talk about the great mystery to and I'm just receive it and know the relevance and meaning of it like right here right now not 10 20 years down the line it's your community, man. So thank you for bringing me on this platform, you know? Oh, wow, man. Thank you. I definitely, definitely appreciate that. I think you were one of the highlights of last year's lineup of guests, for sure. Definitely one of the best. And I always have a great time talking with you. But let's bring it back to this most recent book and close it out with that positive message of how to free the mounds, as you say, because free the mounds and the mind will follow. And in the book, you cover Philadelphia, Richmond, and Washington, D.C., but 
How widespread are these necrogeomantic cities across America? Do you think most of the major cities, the top city or two in each state would qualify? I think most cities are, are, are founded by mound gritters, definitely. And definitely want to study the high places in your region, their history, indigenous and colonial. We want to uh, study burial places in your region, study the layout of the land, determine its alignment with the magnetic poles. Google Earth, hey man, we're in the time of Google Earth, I gotta be honest, use it, you know, get that aerial view, plot major points in your region and see what pattern evolved. It's exciting, amazing, fun research. And, uh, once you, once you get a pretty good idea of how they got the geomantic grid on lock. You should also have a pretty good vision on how you can circumvent it in ways you can still magnetize and reconnect with the cosmos, the earth, and your ancestors in spite of it. And again, if you are beyond just decoding it yourself, make others aware, you're going to demagnetize a lot of those edifices, and they'll probably dismantle them themselves, man. I witnessed that two weeks ago. Social con. When I saw, I couldn't believe it. When I saw social consciousness coming down, man, that's significant. Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, but then we can also follow Benjamin Banneker's guide, his lead, where he studied the lay of the land, the global mound matrix, the local mound matrix and was like, hey, if I lay a stone here with a certain intention, it's going to manifest some magic. Mm -hmm. So we have that same power within us. It just starts with the intention. And so that is what we leave the book with, you know, yes. planting the seed of intention to help reawaken the global mound matrix. Mm -hmm. And you actually mentioned a guy named Michael... Michael Cord. Michael Cord? Yes. I was curious. He's an attorney who serves in Philadelphia who founded the ATAC Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. And this is a great idea. I was just curious. I mean, you use him as an example, but how deep is his understanding of all this? Do the two of you speak about these matters at all? No, actually not. I just admire his works. He, he is a, what I would consider a prime example of reclamation works, mm. where a lot of times a part of the desecration of the burial sites is that they're just buried over. A highway's made over them. They're made into a parking lot, Walgreens or whatever, you know? And so he, the Avenged the Ancestors Coalition, when there were construction development projects in Philly going on that was going to bury over indigenous burial sites and indigenous history. Yeah, he stepped up and was like, nah, it ain't going down like that mm. and had local successes. You know, there's another example uh, in Richmond where the acronym of the group escapes me. I do have it documented in the book, but. Uh, African burial ground was going to be made into a parking lot. And they were like, nah, and got reclaimed the land, got a uh, 
you know, like, uh, uh, you say park status applied to it. So they don't have to worry about it being developed in the future. And erected a, a, a obelisk, a Tekken, in honor of the ancestors remembered and forgotten there. So we cite those as reclamation efforts. And there's others, you know, the African burial ground in New York, near Wall Street, in uh, New York, uh, Manhattan. Uh, Dr. Lorenzo Pace, an artist, Montclair State professor at Montclair State University. He designed a uh, memorial to the African burial grounds that were about to be reburied over in lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So we do cite those efforts because they're important. Absolutely. It's definitely powerful stuff. It's a little more black and white in terms of how to decipher the geomantic spell, how to find the nodes and locations. That's, you know, pretty binary. But then once you've done that to kind of reverse engineer the spell or to decode it and what the intention was takes a little more nuance and of course it's just as much an art as it is as a science so you know the art side of it is you got to get creative and figuring out how in your specific instance what you can do to kind of reclaim some of this stuff i mean we had this major dust up in recent years over civil war monuments and some people think it's meant to inflame racial tensions, the attention it got, and that's probably true. Other people thought these are just statues. Who really cares? We got real world economic issues to deal with, and that is in the mix as well. But obviously, I hope we made the case today that this stuff is super important and it does have deep ties and deep energetic implications and most likely getting rid of these Civil War monuments is just a small sliver of the work that really needs to be done. We need to go reach much deeper back in our history and try to, I guess, karmically unload some of this negativity that's been just cultivated over this whole land, everywhere the empire's been, essentially. I would agree. And uh, But again, what I, what I say, and this is what I think, I feel, I affirm, and I advocate, that if we get a critical mass of people with the awareness of the G, that they can clearly articulate the geomantic spell of a region, right? The ones that can't, we don't, you don't have to tear them down. You don't have to get enraged and inflamed and, and, and fight over it. To be honest, that's probably going to, the polarity of that is probably going to feed their grid Mm. and feed their intention. If you ask me, right? If we get this awareness to enough people talking about it, they're going to take that thing down themselves, man. That's my, and, and I, and I think we have evidence of it right here in Philadelphia this month. Very significant edifice taken down from uh, a very significant geomantic spot in the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. And it's clear the work you're doing is having an effect. And I know it's a marathon session around here, but I am going to let you go. Before I do, just remind the people about your three books or how they should get them to, so it's maximum benefit for you or just anything else you got going on because I know people are going to want to follow up. Yes. Well, my books are all three of my books are available at rossben.com. 
Rocks of Ages is actually temporarily out of print. I hope to be reprinting it soon. But Great Mystery Philadelphia and Free Your Mound and Your Mind to Follow. Available at rockspin.com. I don't deal with the Amazon the Beast. <laughs> you know? And I'm minimally active on social media. And that does, you know, make it appear like I don't exist or that these works are more difficult to find than they really are. But R-A-S-B-E-N dot com. One-stop shop, online source. And uh, I do have a YouTube platform, Rossbin188, that I do see myself being more active on. I think of all of the online platforms, YouTube is probably the one I, I I feel I can maybe manage the most with uh, just the level of involvement I want as far as being online, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would say look for that. I, my intention is to get perhaps a weekly YouTube show where, you know, we might just, I might even build it around decoding. Kind of, I'm playing with the visions, but one vision I have is, uh, right, we share the keys for decoding a city. Somebody goes, they break down their city. We chop it up, make a little, uh, session on, hey, great mystery, St. Louis, great mystery, San Diego, mm-hmm. great mystery, Cincinnati, Ohio. I already got some folk chopping it up in a couple of places. South Florida being one. I got community of ones decoding that area. Uh, New York City also. So I would love to build a community around this. Mm-hmm. And maybe even later editions of the book that includes the decodings of these other places and the contributors giving, you know, credit and being a part of it. It seems like something fun to do in 2019, you know? Yes, man. Absolutely. I think that's the perfect direction for you to go. As I mentioned, I did this just a little bit in San Diego and found several things. And that was absolutely what came to mind is, wow, this should be the template for decoding this across the country. So I think you're really on to something. You've definitely laid the base and... I know you're going to build it up. It's pretty awesome. So when, when we started this thing, there were birds chirping. Now it seems like the storm's rolling in. Oh, so you hear the rain, huh? <laughs> yeah, we can, we can definitely call it in. But man, the energy is swirling, that's for sure. And yeah. I'm just very thankful uh, for everything you do. I'm glad we're connected. I'm glad you're willing to join me. You're a real wealth of information. I'm sure we'll do it again, but take care out there. Thank you, man. Much love, TLC. <laughs> T- as well. I said TLC. TAA. <laughs> I've had a little too much TAC. No. <laughs> much love, TAC. You as well. Take care, man. All right. Rock me like a hurricane, people. The triumphant return of the great Ross Ben. With an excellent book about reversing the damage done and breaking the necrogeomantic spell that became the American Empire. Free your mound and your mind will follow. Really loved it, and I definitely think the next move for his material would be to let people run with it 
and map out the template in their own cities. As I mentioned, I did it here in San Diego, and I was really surprised how quickly it came together with just the few local landmarks that I knew about and wanted to test the theory with. I'm also aware that the takeover of the local population where I am was particularly bloody and violent, so I guess I would expect to see some effort put into the energetic locking up of the area. I guess I should have asked Ben if the Spanish were just as clued in as the British, because we wouldn't be talking about the exact same people, but I wouldn't be surprised if they knew the same tricks. And I mean, the proof is in the template, and the points that I found really do stand out around this city. Kind of a sidetrack, but this show did get me looking into the local people here. The Kumei people. I started doing some reading about them and their spiritual traditions, and it got pretty interesting. It turns out on a big mountain that everybody likes to hike out here, Mount Cowles, they actually carved into this rock a solstice marker. In fact, it might have even been like a little Stonehenge up on the top of the mountain, or at least a stone circle. But listen to this paragraph from the local paper about a current tradition to climb the mountain on the winter solstice. It says, According to local archaeologists and anthropologists, today's visitors at solstice time are repeating a ritual that dates back centuries. Prior to about 200 years ago, Kamehi Indians kept a vigil on Cowles Mountain during the shortest days of the year. They watched day after day as the rising portion of the sun drifted farther south along the horizon, apparently stopped its drift for a day or two, then finally drifted north. The precise day, or perhaps two days, marking the solstice could be determined by any observer watching successive sunrises from the same precise spot. That particular spot on Cowles Mountain once held a circular array of stones crossed by an arrow of rocks pointing to the winter solstice sunrise direction. Observers standing there centuries ago and today see the rising sun's upper rim briefly split into two halves by a distant boulder pile sticking up from a far-off ridge before coming together as one brilliant ball of light. So that seems pretty cool. I mean, they really do just gloss over this circular array of stones crossed by an arrow of rocks pointing to the winter solstice sunrise direction. Seems like it should have been preserved as a piece of history, but, you know, hikers gotta hike. It's really sad that that's the case. And here I am, taking trips to Armenia with Graham Hancock to look at petroglyphs, or going to walk around Avesbury outside of London with Gordon White, and I find out there's something like this five miles from my house before it was removed for some stupid reason. And funny enough, Mount Cowles here might be one of those points on the Ross Ben template because clearly something indigenous was taken away and next time I go there, I'm going to really think about that plaque that's there because there is a stone that looked a lot like the Banneker stone with a big plaque on it. Clearly the 
indigenous use of the mount was usurped, but I don't know if there's anything specifically insulting or worth decoding on that plaque. But there are still some carved rocks up there that mark the solstice, and it just makes me think that this stuff is all around us. We don't need to dream about a trip to Peru. We need to dig into the local history of our own areas. And in doing that, trying to show respect to the people that were here, maybe. And this is a side note, too, but immigration is such a topic of conversation in the national discourse. And that's because the system would rather have you looking down at poor people trying to have a better life than at the robots and AI that are actually going to replace jobs or the military-industrial complex and the corporate loopholes where the money actually goes. But within all this border wall talk, I learned another thing about the Kumei tribe that called this land home, and their tribal lands actually stretched from upper San Diego northern San Diego, you know, down to Tijuana. And when the U.S.-Mexico border was established, it went directly through their homelands. I read some articles about investigations into this and some quotes from people who were affected, and it's really sad to hear that families, in some cases, are still split, or it definitely altered their family forever. And decisions were made with no care or consideration as to how people here lived, And now we say, this is America, and that's Mexico. And they're saying, well, that over there is the house that my great-grandfather built, and I was born here, so I can't go over there, is what you're saying? I need a stamp on a book? It's messed up. And sometimes I do have this cold, tough-shit attitude when people tell me about, I don't know, problems with life or courts or work or whatever, Because I just expect things to generally suck and be unfair in this system. So when you deal with the system, yeah, I'm not surprised you're frustrated and annoyed. But I think if you spent some time looking up the tribes that lived where you live now and what happened to them and what they were about, where they might still exist if they do, that stuff is a lot more heartbreaking. To not see the steamroll coming, to be minding your own business, you don't even speak the language, you are not equipped for this. You think it's just another Thursday, but it's the first day of a brutal genocide. So a bit of a San Diego tangent all around there, but I think it's relevant to the overall themes of the show, and I think you'll learn some interesting stuff if you dig into your own area. That's all I'm saying. And I know this episode came in just a little short. That happens sometimes. You spend a few minutes at the beginning of the call with the guest trying to make sure everything sounds good. And then at the end, I guess you can't hear it in the final product, but there was a lot of really loud rain. And I knew it would have been an editing problem for me, so I cut them loose just a few minutes early too because I expected it to be a sound quality nightmare. And from what I'm hearing, it sounds just fine. So thanks to the new editor, you know, it has been a rough, rocky month for THC, but something that has gone really well is the transition to our new editor. It is a company that I really couldn't have afforded a few years ago, and they don't just edit for ums and ahs, but they level the volume, they compress the audio professionally, they boost it, they do all the things that are over my head, over my wife's lovely head, and I think... This month's shows have sounded really great. 
But this is another scenario where those free listeners can thank the plus listeners for being willing to support the show because now their portion, their version, sounds a lot better. Of course, there's still going to be little fluctuations because every guest's recording environment is different, but these guys really seem to know how to jazz up anything. They're great. (laughs) I even saw a couple of comments on the new site that were like, wow, the shows even sound better through this new player. And I thought, oh, how cute. They think it's the website. But it's actually our new audio editing engineering company. And I hope to keep them for the long haul. But we're here now. And I thought it was one of the better ones in a while when it comes to a show on esoteric conspiracy magic. I'm sure a lot of you agree. I would say get the new book or listen closely to the template we talked about today and check your own area. Look for mounts, look for cemeteries, look for statues that prop up the empire and see where they are and what they're named. I would love to see some people bring exactly that to the next joint session. It gives us something to talk about, gives you some material to have, and we can run through some. It'd be a lot of fun. So big Ross Ben fan. I'm lucky to be able to have him come and share his insights with us. In the second hour of the show for Plus People, we talked about a lot more. Things like the Ross Ben model of reality. How is this thing structured? How does manifestation work? Talked about the importance of the ancestors coming up a lot lately. Seems to be very key. 5G, crystals, hematite, and the rest of Mineral Nation. And a few more details on how to reclaim the global mound matrix. And it was really hard to find a free plus split on this one because the section about Banneker's Chocolate City is so interesting and lengthy that we kind of had to find a place in it to cut so that we could get to that last portion about how to take this work forward. But Benjamin Banneker, he just seems like someone we should remember. I know that heritage got a little tricky, but you can imagine at the time just how little effort was made to understand or care where an indigenous person was from. I think it pretty obviously was a you're one of us or you aren't kind of things. Did we bring you over here from Africa or just steal your native land? Whatever. It's all the same. I mean, that's so shitty and pretty raw, but we all know that that's how it was. So the idea that maybe Banneker didn't just learn these things from interfacing with Jefferson and the elites or being self-taught or getting it from them as a source, but it might have been his heritage too. He might have been privy to indigenous knowledge, and I think that's intriguing in its own right, that he might be a vector in which we saw that filter down. I did want to make sure we got the Marion Barry anecdote in the free show, because I think that's a funny little detail, because, I mean, the point is that we're trying to see the effects of the magic, right? So we have to look for things that happen that are against the grain, are unexpected. So we have an era of D.C., where non-white people are able to thrive in a wider context that already makes that seem like a challenge, and then you have Marion Barry, an African-American mayor who's caught smoking crack in an FBI sting, and after his six months in federal prison, 
he was elected mayor again. So I guess the point of that is the magic Banneker set up was so powerful that within the nexus of D.C., nothing could interfere with the people. I just love that little saga because it helps to clarify the effects of the magic or what they might be. Why do things happen as they do? What kind of influence do these things have? Can you find examples that are anomalous or against the grain of what you'd expect for the time period? And yeah, that's what this looks like. But anyway, I hope to learn a lot more from Ross Ben over time. I think he knows a lot about a lot, and uh, he's on brand. <laughs> he's on brand for THC, that's for sure. Gotta love that. So do check out his books. Do check out RossBen.com. Look him up on YouTube. Follow him. Let him know you enjoyed the show and that we should do more. And that's it. That's another episode in the bag, and we'll pick it up next week. Thanks again for listening. Couldn't do it without you, and I'll see you next time. Your move, Geomantic Masons, esoteric elite, and agents of the Empire. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. Ask you a question Cause I know your head Is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Scarier every day Scary dark world No matter what you say Scary dark world Don't think we'll be okay Can't you see that we're so Ooh. You sit and wish But we don't have a choice Seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC You know You go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Scarier every day Scary dark world
delightful, pressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world. 